you would take your Bibles and turn to Ruth, the book of Ruth, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. If you find your way to Samuel, you've gone a bit too far. My family enjoys actually very much watching movies together. We watch uh, mostly movies that I think are pretty good and, and you can actually have conversation about them occasionally. Um, there are movies that are exceptionally intellectual and require a lot of deep thought, um, like one of my favorites, Three Amigos. Um, and it's, uh, it's actually required watching as much as we have required reading of great classics of Jane Austen's and others uh, in our home as we homeschool. Um, that's actually required watching because it's such a cultural, uh, realistic film. Uh, in fact, it's why we have Cinco de Mayo, which we just celebrated this last week. It's not at all why we have Cinco de Mayo, just so you know. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this, actually, uh, how movies are watched. I was, had the privilege of going home to Fort Worth this week and spending time with my mother and my oldest sister. And, um, of course, it's continually recalling times and the absence of my, my father. And we watched a lot of movies. We watched a lot of old movies. In fact, I credit... Uh, my father, one of the greatest things that he did was uh, show me that in the old classics that were romantic comedies back in the day with, uh, whether it was uh, Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant, that I think that actually helped my uh, burgeoning marriage. It made me okay with rom-coms and uh, so that I could see some level of masculinity in them and not just watch John Wayne and say, well, you know, Catherine Hepburn was in it and it seemed like they kind of loved each other. So it's a love story um, to try to convince Jan to watch these things with me when really it was just a lot of guns blazing and smoke, but that's okay. The idea though is uh, I remember such a difference. A lot of times currently when people are trying to make movies and they try to capture that classic old sense, a lot of times they'll run the credits at the beginning. Perhaps you've seen this. In fact, when I try to show my kids old movies, I will just have to skip that, do that little 15-second loop if we're on Netflix or whatever and just try to get past those credits because it takes up like the, la the first three and a half minutes of, of the film rolling. And a lot of times that's simply just to show here's all the players that are contributing to this film you're about to watch. And you're to appreciate this, you're to see this. Now, currently though, in present day, most movies will dive right in. In fact, a lot of times they'll make agreements with the supporting and financing companies to not actually put their company name at the very beginning because they want you to dive into the myth from the very get-go. They don't want to peel back the curtain. They don't want you to see Oz. They don't want you to do anything until the very, very end after you've had this great, um, deep, but fantastical experience of diving into the mythology of whatever that film is. Unless it's based on a true story, which you know then the protagonist is actually gonna die. Cause that just happens in every true story film. Um, Cause that's life, right? Um, they don't actually live and make it to the end. Um, sometimes they do, but rarely, rarely do they. Um, and that's, the, you know, as we go through this, as I was thinking about Ruth, um, you know, there's no real mythology here. Um, we're actually gonna walk through this wonderful book for the next couple of months. Um, just really taking our time through it. However, today we're going to do a bit of a synopsis. Now, with that, we're going to do it kind of like an old classic film. I'm going to give you a list of characters. We're going to give you a synopsis of the film. I'm going to give you spoilers, but since it was written over 3,000 years ago, that's on you if you don't know how this thing ends. Um, but I am. I'm going to give you spoilers today. And, uh, but we're not going to go into great detail today because I want us to unpack this over the coming weeks because it really is a beautiful story. It is artistically written. It is, 
it has an incredible flow and narrative to it, and yet it also has really deep meaning related to redemption and grace. That's why the title of this short series is Ruth, A Story of Redemption and Grace. But we're going to talk about those characters. We're going to talk about the plot summary. But we're also going to talk about how that story fits within the greater story, the greater story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. Because there's some wonderful connections with this book, with this family. And so with that, we're going to dive right in. First of all, I want you to go to chapter 1, and we're going to start reading 1 through 4. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left with her two sons, without her two sons and without her husband. Man, what a fairly dark beginning. There's a famine in the land. This is during the time of the judges. So it's probably written somewhere in this, uh, you know, 1300 BC to 1000 BC, somewhere in that range. That's about the time period that you had the judges reigning before at about 1050 is when Saul actually becomes king. And so then subsequently David gives you a little bit of the kind of landscape of Old Testament where Ruth fits in. Famine in the land, they leave their homeland, so they're, 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 Jew, they're Jews, they're in, living in Judah, and they go to Moab. Moab was a terrible place. The Moabites were incredibly ruthless, but there was food, there was grain. So in the midst of that, he leads his family, and in the course of that, Naomi then experiences the loss of a husband, Then in the course of that, she then has her two sons die. Now, we don't know how or why. Perhaps there was disease, genetic disease in the family. No no idea, except we understand that God's providential hand is behind this. And that's one thing we're going to see throughout this entire series. And then what you have is a woman who is left with her two daughters-in-law. That's how this thing starts. Lots of loss. Let's look how it ends. If you would, flip over to chapter 4. Sixteen through twenty-two, and we'll fill in some of these details later if you don't know what they're referring to. But then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, "A son has been born to Naomi." They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So what begins with great loss and a lot of isolation, a lot of loneliness, these three women, in a, well, Naomi's in a foreign land, the, the other two women were actually Moabites. There's a lot of factors going on here, which we're not going to go into the details of. We're going to go into those when we, when we start to walk through this in smaller fashion. Incredibly lonely, incre- incredibly isolated. The way this thing culminates, though, is 
the foundational establishment of the very line of David that would eventually lead to the birth of Jesus Christ. Phenomenal. What begins an incredible loss, actually, at the end, we see the fruitfulness, the faithfulness, and really, in a sense, the providential hand of God sometimes bleeding through. You know, as we're being faithful, as we're trying to, to press through, sometimes we complain. Every once in a while, you'll see God's providence peek through. And you see that he's been, not like we're puppets, but he, we see his hand, his gracious, merciful, but sovereign hand come through. That's the story of Ruth. Now let's go back to chapter one. I'm going to read the rest of this first chapter, starting in verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where, there, uh, where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grants you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? And they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This gives you an idea of the perspective she's having. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. This is very important. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt, me, dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Man, what a beginning to the story. It's not a long story. It's only four chapters. This is the beginning. Then you have chapter four that begins to have the conclusion. Really chapters two and three begin to give us the, the real narrative meat of where this goes. But essentially it starts out exactly as we have read. Naomi starts out full. They leave though and go to Moab because of the famine. And in doing so, there's incredible loss. Now you can see how she's feeling about her relationship with God in the midst of this. She believes that God has removed life from her, so to speak, for some reason. 
Now, before we jump to conclusions of thinking that she's feeling kind of legalistic, and I'm not going to go deeply into this, I'm just going to mention it because we will unpack this in the weeks to come. But I think it's very possible because of the laws of God that he had given his people that if you will remain faithful, I will provide for you. And part of that faithfulness was to remain in the land. This was given and actually articulated through the judges. Okay, so this is the time in which they're living. So it's very possible that out of fear and fear fueling a lack of faith, that Elimelech led his family to go where the food was instead of staying and trusting God. Partial speculation, but the evidence actually bears against that. So therefore she is thinking in light of some disobedience that we went along with this and Elimelech led us into this, that we've experienced real loss. It's not crazy for her to think this because they have the looming exodus to remind them, if you don't obey the Lord and walk in his ways, sin leads to death. But then she comes back because why? She was working in the fields in Moab and heard that the Lord had been dealing faithfully with his own people, of which she was a part. So you can imagine the hesitation actually she felt in going back, but the truth was she had no other choice. Because actually Israel had some laws to deal with widows. There was actually a way for widows to be cared for via their family. There were obligations, some legality, but more a strong moral responsibility by some family members. And again, we'll unpack that in weeks to come because that's where Boaz steps in. So she at least knew there was a possibility of being cared for there, but in Moab, there was no option. In fact, the Moabites were a whole lot more like the Canaanites. For a woman like that, there was pretty much only one option. You become a prostitute because there is no provision for widows. And you know what's kind of fascinating about the story? Again, part of the spoiler alert here. You know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab. A prostitute who actually shielded the spies going into Jericho from Joshua's leadership and she believed in their God and God delivered only her family out of what went on in Jericho and ended up marrying and gave birth to Boaz crazy not a Jew and a prostitute could be the future of where Naomi was going to have to wind up but she was a Jew and she sucked it up and went home so let's talk about some of these cast of characters as we just do this overview. And again, you know, there are several themes for this Mother's Day that actually come to us through this wonderful book. And we'll touch on some of those today. So you have a Limelech, okay? Kind of flows off the tongue. I'm not sure any of you will name your children such, but a Limelech is there and he is the guy. He is the husband of Naomi and he's leading his family and they have their two sons, Malon and Chilion. Naomi is the wife. Malon ends up being Ruth's husband. Chilion is Orpah's. Not Oprah. You got to get that right. You've got to read it right. It's not a typo. It's Orpah. They were considered to be or called Ephrathites from Bethlehem, but essentially they were Jews. They were in Judah and they were Jews. They, their home was in Israel. Again, except for the wives, not Orpah and not Ruth. They were Moabite women. So this is another factor. Not only had they gone and left the land of Israel by Elimelech's lead, but probably out of fear of not being fed and not trusting that God would take care of them, 
And I mean, that's one thing. Do you know how often in the Old Testament that God forbids the intermarrying um, with, and we're not talking about interracial marriage, we're talking about mingling with other gods. He did not want his children marrying into other gods. And so you even see that in the, in the separation between Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, that she says, see, Orpah has gone back to her gods. This would have been actually vile for these men, Chilion and Malon, to have married Moabite women because it meant they were commingling with foreign gods. So that was also a mark against them, so to speak. Whether or not their deaths were related to a judgment or not, we don't have actually a lot of clarity, so I'm not going to speculate. But I do know the circumstances definitely go against many directives that God had given and commands that God had issued even during the time of the judges in which they were living. So then what you have is Naomi then going back to home in Bethlehem with a Moabite woman, a foreigner, an alien, in a sense, an illegal immigrant. Then you have Boaz who comes into the scene. We're not going to go into the detail of Boaz because he's very central to this story. But he's a relative of Elimelech, okay? Pretty close relative, actually. But again, like I said, he's the son of Rahab. And so, and again, she was a Canaanite woman, not unlike those Moabites. Boaz is a very central story as he is called the kinsman redeemer in this story, a very Christ-type figure. Very well respected in his community. I, it was hard not to read this and think about some of the stories he heard as a kid, though. I mean, my goodness. It, it, Everybody wants their dad to tell them some adventure or some stories of, of, you know, the older I get, the better I was kind of athlete stories that all of you men have shared because you, you weren't that good, but you share like you were that great and you share it with your kids. God will judge you for it later, but it's okay. No, I'm just kidding. He hopefully won't, but, um, but we share these stories, but man, I bet he was saying, mom, will you please come tell me some stories? Especially tell me the one about the spies. Man, what stories? But then you have Obed. Obed ends up being this new child. Now keep in mind something. Chilion, Malon, married to Orpah and Ruth. For 10 years, they lived together in Moab. No children. So again, you can see some of the even Mother's Day themes here. You have Naomi, who is very protective of her kids, wanting them fed. They go to a foreign land, not something she wants to do. In a sense, could be against her will, so to speak, and yet wants to take care of her family and does. That's a mothering thing, right? She wants to shield them. Then she goes through all this loss. And on top of that, her new daughters-in-law are apparently dealing with infertility of some sort or barrenness. The hope of motherhood and it only being rejected. It not being expanded. And then the only child that comes along as a result of the union that we'll see with Ruth and Boaz is Obed. And again, Obed ends up being the son of Ruth and Boaz. He is the grandson to Naomi. He ends up being the father of Jesse, the grandfather of David, and the great, 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 however many times, grandfather of Jesus. What a mixed providential story that is filled with tons of grace and mercy all along the way. It's an incredible outline. Now, let's just dive in a little bit to plot summary. So, most of it you've gotten from what we've already read. That sometime during this judge's ministry, during the judge's ministry, but before David's reign, so again, sometime before 1050, probably, um, 
and, and I, don't, I don't think it was early on in the judge's reign or, or ministry between 1398 BC and 1050, but somewhere in there. So again, about 1,200 years, 1,100 years or so before the coming of Christ. There's this famine that hits Judah. Elimelech takes his family, and then I've told, you that, I've told you enough to know that what happens, and then she is left alone. The sons, after they married Moabite women, which would have been forbidden under Jewish law, they stayed together. They had no children. They had no hope of a future because that was a very important thing for them, even under Jew- Jewish law, would have been very important for any kind of protection. And for them, they probably had decided to stay in Moab for good because those protections would not be sustained when they would come back to Judah with having a mixed marriage with Moabites. Just such a mess. So then Naomi, while laboring in the fields, hears about what's going on. We've mentioned this. She's determined to return to her home, Bethlehem. And as the three ladies then leave, and there's this tearful, which gives you a little bit of an idea of the kind of relationship that she had with her daughters-in-law, despite the fact that they were foreigners, that it was a very loving relationship that they had. I don't think there's any indication in the text it was merely because they were hopeless, because the Moabite women actually had a home to go back to. But they cared for her. They didn't want to see this. And this love and this gentleness and this kindness that's going on, you know, before we're too hard on, on Orpah, I mean, it is, it is a story about Ruth, and essentially it ends up being a story about Boaz and his marriage to Ruth. As they say their goodbyes, and, they, and then these two, Naomi and Ruth, return to Bethlehem, through several acts of kindness and God's providence, Ruth ends up meeting and marrying Boaz. We'll unpack those in the weeks to come. Who's a relative of Elimelech, which was part of, the, part of the deal, part of the arrangement, part of what's necessary for debts to be removed, and even in a sense, sin to be forgiven, but more on that later. And through this marriage, Naomi is then cared for because in the, in the end of the book, it talks about how Naomi is then given a son. It wasn't technically her son, but it was Ruth's son. It was her grandson. But she became the nursemaid, so to speak, for her grandson. And it gave her great joy in the end. In fact, some of you, as you experience this in in motherhood, a lot of times because of great loss and great hurt, there are often times where grandmothers are left to raise the children of their daughters and of their sons because they have left the scene. But she took him as her own when Obed was born to Ruth and Boaz. It was a great joy for, for Naomi, the grandmother, to see that the Lord had been doing a great and kind work all along. In fact, again, as we read in the first chapter, how Naomi felt like that God's judgment was coming against her, that he was pressing against her, frustrating any efforts of any good. And she felt this loss. She is literally seeing God's kindness come through over and over again. It is absolutely an act of mercy, but it comes via the agency of human kindness. Guys, this is not the day and age we live in in the church too much. We don't really trust God's means, remembering that if kindness, the kindness of God of the Lord leads to repentance, how do we expect the lost world to hear that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance if we are just mean as you know what? 
Because we've decided that the end justifies the means. That was Elimelech's thinking in leaving Judah in the first place. To eat short-sighted for the wind, so to speak. But God in his kindness turned this thing because he had a long-term plan. Not just a human named Boaz who would be a kinsman redeemer, but an eventual kinsman redeemer who would be Jesus Christ. And not only as a metaphorical picture, but literally the line of Jesus leading through these people, through this messed up situation, God orchestrating history so that at just the right time, Christ came. Ruth is all about redemption and grace. See, again, on this Mother's Day, remember, Naomi had the joy of being a mom, but then, and she was cared for by a husband. Even if he was, in a sense, rebellious against God, he still tried to care for them by getting them food. It was short-sighted, and it was probably rebellion because he left Judah. But nonetheless, he did care for them, but then she lost her spouse. Then she lost her two boys. She knew the joys and the pains, the gains and the losses of motherhood. Orpah and Ruth desired motherhood, but again, for whatever reason, for 10 years, they're without children. This would have been seen as a mark against you. Whether you were in Moab and had a polytheism, multiple guides, they would have seen that as God being against you. If you can't have children. It doesn't matter if there was endometriosis or some kind of actual illness that kept you. It didn't matter. Their perspective would have been the gods are against you you would have been a bit of a pariah. And even barrenness was not necessarily looked upon as favorable even among the Jews. They were always treated with a deep-seated sadness because of how central it was to bear children. Through all these joys and pains, again, God's providence, both seen and unseen. I'll give you an example. In Israel, there are laws that actually afford protection for widows, but it's through this kinsman redeemer, basically a relative who could step in and had a bit of a moral obligation to step in and financially secure the well-being of the widow of his relative's, you know, wife. And so because of Elimelech being this close relative to Boaz, Boaz had this moral obligation. But actually what was interesting is the he wasn't the first in line. There was another relative even closer who had that moral obligation, but because he believed it would actually hurt his prospects of gaining more land to actually have to financially back Naomi, he said, no, I can't do it. So it technically wasn't against the law, but he had, in a sense, forsaken a moral responsibility. So Boaz steps in and incredible kindness and generosity does what he does. So the providence of God is even unseen in a sense in the fact that there were laws established that could protect the widow. That's a providential hand of God. He sometimes allows there to be systems set in place that can actually protect us in these situations that we never imagined we'd be in. Don't neglect that that could be an unseen act of God's providence. But then there's clearly, clearly providential acts that are seen. They saw the birth of Obed as nothing less than God's hand of providence in their life, a gift. 
No, it wasn't some immaculate conception. It was the good old-fashioned way, but it was God's plan for the lineage of David leading to the ancestry that would produce Christ. It's amazing. But ultimately, even bigger than that, bigger than the perspectives of being a mother and bigger than the perspectives of this incredible story going on in real time, written beautifully in the Old Testament some 1,200 years or so before Christ comes, more importantly, it's about the hope, the redemption and grace we see in Christ. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. That was written between 730 and 700 BC. We'll say about 500 years later than what's going on in Ruth. God is orchestrating in real time, 500 years prior to this prophetic word from Micah about the Christ person coming through Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, he is literally orchestrating the line of David leading to the line of Christ. 500 years prior, the providential hand of God, his purposes will persist. The glory of Christ will be known. Redemption will be made possible. And let's not forget, it's made possible for the nations. Because remember, who comes in with Naomi? A Moabite. She is literally listed in the line of Jesus. Jesus. So not only do you have a mixed history when it comes to experiences like Rahab, you also have a Canaanite and a Moabite in his line. Matthew 1, 5 and 6, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Matthew, in the Matthew begets, it's literally leaning to the light of Christ. Luke 3.32, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, as he goes back and traces back the line through Joseph. Incredible. God is orchestrating this. So on a small scale, it's not insignificant, but on a small scale, I would remind you this, Christian mom, whatever loss or experience you're going, going through, please trust that God can still take whatever is going on in your life. I'm not saying put it in new text. I'm not saying that. I'm saying from the text though, we see that God still works out his plans for his redemptive purposes. You don't know how it's gonna play out. It may not even play out in your lifetime. Pray and trust that God would take your deepest hurt, your deepest losses and turn it into opportunities for people to understand and know his grace and redemption. Don't give up on that. And that this hope in Christ, even though it's happening in real time, it is a reminder that even in the Old Testament, as God worked primarily through the Jewish nation of Israel, we are reminded that just also we has in the New Testament, he works primarily through Gentile people he works primarily through a people for the purpose of showing redemption being offered to the nations. It's never salvation only to the Jews then, only to the Gentiles later, and it's just really hard to get in. No, the fact is, is that it is through a particular group at a particular time by his providence, is he going to reveal that it is the hope of the nations? We have Jonah, we have Joel, and we have Rahab, and we have Ruth. 
We have all kinds of examples in the Old Testament where repentance and faith in the one who is to be promised in trusting God is offered to non-Jews. The gospel is for the nations. And in this little picture, this beautiful little anecdotal picture that we have in Ruth, we see in real time with real names, with real people, that there is incredible mercy. See, because in addition to the laws that were already established, do you know that Israel also had, Judah had laws for the immigrant. They had laws for the alien. They didn't see them as less than human. I'm not saying it was great, but I'm saying there were at least laws to see if there was asylum needed, if there was sanctuary sought, and they at least made a provision for this to happen. I'm not saying this in light of it being some kind of politicized statement. I'm saying there is an emulation of God inviting the nations to himself. And for the Christian, for those who are leaning into Jehovah God being the only one who can possibly afford salvation to any of us, we should have a mentality of, just like we saw in 1 Peter, this is not our home. Our citizenship on earth should not equal, much less exceed, our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We should desire for all to come to faith. We should desire that if we are here in Milford and we meet an illegal immigrant, we should be torn as to what to do. Not, I'm not proposing do something illegal, but I'm saying you should see them as human and want to see them come to faith. What if they come to faith? What if they're escaping from a Middle Eastern country where they are going to be tortured and killed? You're going to wrestle. As a Christian, you should wrestle with it at least. It shouldn't be, well, here's what the laws say. They're not really one of us, so get them out of here. Ain't nothing Christian about any of that. There's not anything pre-Christian about that for the Jewish nation. So again, it's not a politicized statement. This is a Christian citizen statement that we see. Naomi walks back with people that were hated. Ruth. And Boaz meets up in kindness. Why? Because he had a Canaanite mom. That God's grace showed up and God's providential work of Jericho being conquered actually funneled through her. And she's listed in Hebrews 11 and she's listed in the begets that lead to Jesus Christ. This is redemption and grace. God's kindness, working through the agency of men being kind, of women being kind, comes through in incredible ways. So we're going to unpack the details in the weeks to come. But moms, I want you to know that even here we have this story. But I don't want to... And I don't mean this the way it sounds. I don't want to cheapen the story by just giving mom points to what's going on in Ruth. Because in a sense, that would actually cheapen your role. Your role is much greater than that. You are to reveal and show characteristics of God for his people as you help care for and lead your families. And we see so much beauty in that. In the midst of all the joys and pains, all the gains and all the losses of motherhood, going on in this story. You can still trust God's providential hand at work. He's going to do some redeeming stuff through all that hurt. 
And you know what? There is nothing less than a community-wide celebration when Obed shows up. They rejoice. They're not sitting there going, oh, when's the other shoe going to drop? Because there's been so much loss. That she's already lost children. You know, this is good for now, but he's probably going to die real soon. I mean, that sounds terrible, but they've got a lot of reason adding up to not necessarily having a lot of hope. They knew how to celebrate in that moment because they saw it as a gift of God. And whatever God was going to do in the pains or in those gains, he was going to show his redemptive, gracious hand. And it was going to point to a savior. For them in real time, it was Boaz. But even he would be pointing to the one that was to come, Jesus the Christ. So look, I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you're coming from. But I do know this. I know that if you find yourself in a situation where you feel like if there is a God, he has been against you because everything that you try, he just seems to not allow there to be any blessing at all. And maybe many times you've tried religion in order to gain some kind of approval from God, almost as if he's a bit of a divine lottery ticket, or he may look favorably upon you and give you good stuff like Santa. That's, that's our MO. But see, God reminds you that there's actually nothing you can do to please him. That sounds like terrible news. It is. <laughs> there's nothing you can do to please him. We all have wandered off to Moab. But will you turn? See, repentance is actually the motion and the action of what Naomi did. She turned away from Moab where there was food she could see and turned back to Judah to where she hoped there would be satisfaction. And she believed there would be. That's faith. We turn away from the gods of this world that we see and we turn to God who we don't see, but we believe him to be real and we trust that he will actually redeem us and save us for good. That is repentance. So if you've come up against brick wall after brick wall, let it have its full effect. All the frustrations of lack of promises fulfilled of this world and find that there's only one who can fulfill his promises and that's God through Jesus Christ. And he can save you and he can bring you to be his own. And he will save you forever. And although you still may go through pains and losses and you probably will, you will have purpose and meaning behind it all. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your mercy, your grace, and we thank you especially for this picture of redemption that we see in this book of Ruth. I thank you that in your providence you've seen fit for us to look at this book at this time, even beginning on this particular day of Mother's Day and the connections that can be made there. I pray that it would resonate with Christian moms to give them hope and to give them endurance that you are still at work even though there may be great difficulty ahead of them. But also, if they're in that season where there's just blessing, then Lord, help them not to feel guilty for just celebrating the goodness of the Lord. And even to invite other people into that celebration as we just celebrate for whatever the Lord is doing, trusting that both the good and the ill is going to be used for your glorifying purposes. God, if there is anyone here or even watching that 
is realizing that they have tried continually to, in a sense, kind of save themselves by their own arrangements, their own navigation of spiritual beliefs and, and just kind of the a la carte cafeteria style of, of different belief systems and practices. Lord, bring them to a breaking point this day to realize that they must fall before a risen living Christ who has already died in their place. And they believe that and that he is alive and that they believe that and they desire to live following him the rest of their days. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would truly then immediately, as you promise, indwell those who truly believe. May it be for your glory and your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.